And as they are heading out, if you would like to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6, is where we'll be spending the beginning of our time here together. Now, if you're hopping into the middle of this, this is a three-part series, and uh, if you weren't here last week, uh, you were in part two, and uh, you are uh, maybe still be back in part one, so I'm going to kind of give us a running start, hopefully, uh, for our time here. What, we've been, what we're planning on doing, by God's grace, is to have three biblical family conversations. As we said last week, as many times through the hustle and bustle of our lives, we are moving so quick that we never stop, pause, and assess what's going on. What are the challenges? What are the things that we're facing? And last week we talked about uh, this diagram uh, that we'll see here on the slide. And we talked about if you were to take an average kid's life and you were to break down the week to 168 hours that are there, what are the influences that are coming at them? Obviously, what is taking up their time when we saw sleep, we saw school, and we saw the electronic use? And we talked last time a lot about the concept of, you know, we want to all of a sudden blame electronics for everything, but if you're not careful, you miss some of the other things that are going on there. In the bottom corner there, you see that church discipleship, if you take your child or your child goes to church, the average, you're roughly getting one out of 168 hours of potential influence by just taking them to church alone. And hopefully you should look at that and say, that's not enough. All right? That's why just having your child in church alone should show that's woefully devoid of things. All right. But there's also a, a potential parent influence that we talked last week was 38 possible hours a week of potential parent influence if you do nothing to address the electronic thing. And the question we were asking ourselves was, what are we doing with that time? What is taking away from it? And then I shared with you the statistic that they say most teens in the span of their day have about a 15-minute conversation with their parents total if you take all of the conversation that they have. And there are times, and I've even looked in my own teen life, that if I've left the house early that morning and my daughter has something very late in the evening, the only thing I may have said to her that whole day was good night. You know, and maybe a 30-second conversation as I just tuck her into bed. All right? And if we're not careful, guess what starts to happen? That steamrolls. And so we talked about that last week, and we also talked about the idea, too, that when Moses is talking to the Israelite people in Deuteronomy chapter 6 here, and then to the Israelite people in Deuteronomy chapter 6 in verse 7, when he's talking about how we are commanded to teach these things to our, ourselves, first of all, and then we're supposed to be teaching them to our children. So in verse 7 it says, you shall teach them diligently to your children. And how are you to teach them diligently to your children? It's as you walk, as you talk, as you rise, as you sit through your daily life. And we talked about that last week. And then we came to these three tables. And we talked about that each one of us grew up at a family table. And each one of us at one of these tables, we were either grew up at a family that was committed to the things of God. And we shared the story about it. Remember, as... Um, as Joshua said, as he's standing there, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. All right, and then we talked about the families that grew up in the compromised world. The world, and we said in this seat here, that they were saved, but really battling with living, in, living too much of the world, and just that battle that rages continually on. They know they should be committed, but you know what? We like, we like our things. 
we don't really want to make that step here. And then we talked about the person that was sitting in this chair. And last year, I used, last week, I used the term moralistic therapeutic deism. And it sounds really cool and exciting. We'll talk about that. But it's not really cool and exciting. It's a belief system that has been bought into by many people that are sitting in this chair here. And then we talked about last week, what does it look like to live in the confused world? The world where Christianity is just maybe a religion that is just added on by people and not there. And I encourage you, if you want to know more about that, you can get the CD or look at it online to try to catch you up to what does it look like to be there. But each one of us grew up in one of these homes. And each one of us, when we sit down at our table, is, fits comfortably behind one of these. And each one of us knows in our own lives why we're at the table that we're at, all right? So what I'd like to do is, just like Moses, before they enter the promised land, basically said to Israel, listen, guys, I don't know if he said it that way, but I believe he said something like this, listen up, we're going to be heading into Canaan, and there's going to be not just pagan gods being worshipped, there's going to be pagan ideas that as we enter into, we actually have to diligently teach our children the things of God. Because if we're not, guess what? The world around them is going to infiltrate their way of thinking every single day. And we need to teach them that the things of God are impactful as we walk, as we talk, as we move. Everything about God permeates who we are. But as we do that, there's a conversation that we need to have about a brand of Christianity. When I say the brand of Christianity, we're putting Christianity in quotes, that has, that has slowly sl uh, snuck in to our Christian thinking as a wolf that has been clothed in sheep's clothing and that we have bought is a view of Christianity that is not Christian at all. Now, in 2005, there was a guy named Christian Smith down in North Carolina that coined the term moralistic therapeutic deism. So let's just pause here for a moment. So 2005, he says, this is what Christian teens believe is Christianity. It's not Christianity at all. It's what he said was moralistic therapeutic deism. So if you're a teenager in 2005, that means you were born somewhere between 1986 and 1992. And you were, grew up in that time period. So that means your parents grew up obviously before that. You following this? And so if you were a teenager, if you were born in that birth time period, you were influenced by what your parents taught you. And now in 2005, you're a teenager. So that means by the time we get to 2019, these teenagers who believe Christianity is moralistic therapeutic deism are raising their own kids. You following this? And so where did this start? It did not all of a sudden just one teenager just scratched his head one day and said, in 2005, I want to be a moralistic therapeutic deist, all right? It started way back, you could even go 60s and 70s, which led us, even further back if you wanted to, which led us to where we are now. You following that? So don't just, let's, let's not just blame the 2005 teenagers. And what I'm trying to say is as we walk through this, we need to understand that this has impacted or at least influenced a lot of our thinking. So, in order to do this, notice what I said. Get back here. So the moralistic therapeutic deist is sitting right here. And if we're like most of us, we know we want to be committed, and we said this is a very comfortable chair, but who is, un 
a very interesting table mate with me, my moralistic therapeutic deist buddy. And who's going to have a greater impact on me? We can just whisper to each other our sweet nothings, right, and influence us to stay here at our compromised table. So let's break this down. So when we use the term moralistic, what we mean by this is, is, so if you have your notes there, if you want to take a little dash and put above moralistic, what is a moralistic person? The focus of a moralistic person is the idea of wanting to be nice. Your goal is to be nice. The, the guys who wrote about this said, they, the goal of a moralistic person is to be nice, kind, pleasant, respectful, responsible, and to work on one's self-improvement, to care for one's health. And the best way to be successful is to be nice. So if you're a moralist, you just decide, as long as it's a nice thing to do, I do it. And what you're going to run away from then, if you're a moralist, is any strong biblical conviction about theology and doctrine, because let's be honest, theology and doctrine cause divides. And if my main goal is to be nice and to be kind above all, uh, let's keep that stuff out of the way. Now you get to the idea of therapeutic. So if you want a therapeutic there, put a little dash. And what is therapeutic? Therapeutic is the idea of problem solving. So Christianity's main job is to solve my problems. So I come at it with whatever is going to solve me therapeutically and make me feel better about myself and about others. So Christianity is just my problem solver. Whatever I determine is the problem as well. And then we get to the last one. So therapeutic, if you just want to do problem solving. Then the last one there is deism. Now, first of all, deism in and of itself uh, started way back before the 2005 teenagers decided that they were deists. Deist is the idea that God creates the world and then literally steps back and just lets it run according to the plan that he kind of had, and he has no real influence in the world upon it now. He just kind of, they would call it the watchmaker who cranks the watch or cranks the clock and just lets it run and then comes back if he does later. But these moralistic therapeutic deists, they believe in a God of sorts who exists and kind of created a moral order for us to follow, but he's not particularly involved in any of my affairs, especially the affairs I prefer him not to be involved in. And then the only time I want God involved is when something major catastrophe happens, and then we want God involved. But after that, you can go back. Now, remember, this is 2005. This is when the researchers said, hey, look, this is the driving theme. Well, let's go back to a major traumatic time in our United States history. Because remember, a moralistic therapeutic deist believes that they're Christian. They believe that this is Christianity. 2001, September 11, 2001, we had a major catastrophe. All of a sudden, the majority of our Christian-ish world goes what? God. And God bless America, God bless this, God, everything is all over the place, and immediately we all run to God, and then when the, the dust settles, okay, God, you can stay over there, Right? We put God back on the shelf, and I would even argue we put him further on the shelf than he was in the past. And now we enter into the 2000s and so forth, and God is put back on the shelf. And we don't need him anymore. And so I'd like to now take you down through, basically the researchers said these are five beliefs 
that a moralistic therapeutic deist believe. These are five things they believe, and they believe this is Christianity. They believe this is biblical Christianity. All right, so number one, and you'll see those in your uh, bulletin there. Number one is a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life. A God, not the God. There's just a God out there. Very impersonal. Notice that already off the get-go. And then we see number two, what a moralistic therapeutic deist believe. God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and most other world religions. So the, what, is the, what, is, what do we want to know? What's good and fair and everything else and the teaching of the Bible are on the same par as what? Everything else. You following this? The number one thing that a Christian that these, as we would call it, therapeutic moralistic deists believe is that this whole, the golden rule thing, oh, well, it seems like everybody believes that, and so that's just like the good part of Christianity we take, do unto others as, they do unto, as you want them to do unto you, and so that's just kind of good stuff we do. But let's not get too deep here. Then we get to the third, is that the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about one's self. So we could rewrite the catechism, the chief end of man is to glorify man and enjoy him forever, right? But this is what, they, we, this is what the Christian moralistic therapeutic deists believe. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, but now who has replaced God? Man. All right, and you go, and by the way, this is not anything new. Genesis 1, actually 2, and moving into 3 tells us that we've been trying to do this ever since, all right? But it just spurred, even in times in our society, things move quicker than others. And then we get to the fourth one here. God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to solve a problem. And then the last one, good people go to heaven when they die. Well, why not? That's where all good people go. And most moralistic therapeutic deists really only believe there's a couple people in hell that would be like guys like Hitler and Stalin and, you know, a bunch of other people. But everybody else... Pretty much, you're into heaven as long as you're good. All right? But notice this. This is not a new religion that's starting over here. This is a group of teenagers that are now having, now having kids that were taught this in some way by the culture around them that this is Christianity. And if you look at these, and if you take a moment here and start looking at if this is what was believed in 2005... Now, it wasn't too long after 2005 we entered into this sexual revolution where as long as people are happy, as long as people are consenting, as long as everything else is okay, and we wonder why, if this is a prevailing view of Christianity, why the church in general went wholesale following that. Because what's the goal at the end of the day? Happy about oneself. And as long as you're happy about yourself, I guess it sounds Christian-ish, so we can just embrace all of these things. Albert Moeller, in one of his articles about this, said the radical transformation of Christian theology and Christian belief replaces the sovereignty of God with the sovereignty of self. In this therapeutic age, human problems are reduced to pathology. So pathology is the study of a cause and effect. What's the cause? We'll just throw an effect at it and somehow keep it away. And so we just come up with treatment plans for everything. So instead of calling something sin... We just come up with a treatment plan for it, devoid of anything of the Bible. Sin is simply excluded from the picture, and doctrines as central as the wrath and justice of God are disregarded as out of step with the times, 
and unhelpful to the project of self-actualization. Because if I am the end of all things, right, why do I need somebody else telling me what to do, right? And so now when you want to spend time with God, you just go to a mirror and you spend time with yourself. Researchers would go on to say what appears to be the actual dominant religion among U.S. teenagers is centrally focused around feeling good, happy, secure, and at peace. And so we sit here and we say, hmm, boy, that's interesting. I'm glad it has not crept into the church, right? I'm glad this way of thinking hasn't entered in. And I would like to say, I think it has, and I think these are the things that we have to be cautious about, because how does it enter the church, it's not as if we need to seal the bottom of the doors because it comes in like a smoke, all right? It comes in by how? Our minds not being renewed daily. It comes in by each one of us continually not staying in God's Word to see what God's Word has to say. Before you know it, we follow our feelings. And so when we start following our feelings, guess what churches start to do? We create Bible studies and we do sermons on felt needs. And before you know it, I pick up the Bible to find my latest life hack about how I can live a successful life, not how I can submit my heart and mind to the things of God. And so now I just go through here and I find, oh, oh, hey, man, you know, that's going to bring me success. So I'm going to follow that one. Oh, well, this one talks about my morality. We'll go over to this one over here that talks about success. And we then cherry pick. And before you know it, the gospel is all about me and not about God. That I become the centerpiece of the cross, not the glory and honor of God the Father. That in a way, I'm doing Jesus a favor. And if we're not careful, then the worship service becomes all about me. And it doesn't take too long of looking at any of our contemporary stuff that we put out here, whether it's books, whether it's music, that put man in the center. And we sit here and we go, whew, boy, that, that can't, I don't know, how, th those people, right? It's always those people. It's one of those ones when everybody ever tells you something, you always want to go, boy, i got to find someone to tell this to because they really need to hear it. And I'm sitting here and myself saying, I need to hear this daily. Because you know who I quickly put in the center of the world? Tim. I didn't mean to burst your bubble because I'm the center of the world, not you. You know, you may say, no, I am, but no. We struggle with this, don't we? Because we think everything starts to revolve around us. That's exactly the, the temptation in the garden. God doesn't know best. You know, even Adam, you know better. So follow your plan. Don't follow God's. And you sit there and go, no, that was a lie. And it's a lie then and it's a lie now. All it's done is just been rewrapped in a different package. And we sit here and we have to say, hey, there's a war going on. But what Satan wants us to do is to not realize we're at war. If we were battling one another, and it was me versus you guys, you know what I'd first start off doing? While I'm loading my gun behind me, I would say, we're not at battle. We're not at war. You can put your guns away. Because why? That would make things a whole lot easier for me, wouldn't it? And yet Satan, what he wants to do, he wants to say this. Things aren't really going to affect you. It would be fun, but I'm not going to do it. But it'd be fun to ask you two questions back to back and keep your hands up for a moment. But I'll ask you the questions, but you don't need to raise your hand. If I were to ask you, how many of you believe that music and movies affect the way the United States people think? All of us would raise our hand, no problems. But if I were to ask you this, how many of you believe the movies that you watch and the music you listen to affects you? 
Well, no, not really. It affects everybody else, but somehow I'm immune to it all, right? But we live in a culture that affects us, right? We could go on that one forever. I'll just, I just stay on my nose here. Conversation two is what we need to talk about. We have to understand. And until we understand this point, we will continually be woefully blind to the things that are going on. We are at war. Now, there's a battle that is raging. Every so often, uh, in my own life, I remember that. (laughs) And if you were to, probably it happens, sadly, far too, not not often enough, but if you were to, every so often, go to the town of Walworth, and in Walworth there's a square, and there's this little tiny diner that is there. Every so often, you will actually, in this diner itself, there's actually a battle that is raging. Now, you won't see chairs being thrown through the window. No, like in the Westerns, will someone go, you know, get tossed out the window either. But there's a battle that is raging on in this diner. You won't hear bullets hitting anything. You won't hear lightsabers doing their zings or whatever they do when they hit, right? Whatever that sound is. But what you will see is a parent sitting across the table from, his ch- from, from their child. And they're not at war with each other. But what we have in that situation there is a parent that understands somewhat, trying to understand, by God's grace, that there's a war for not just their own heart, but for their child's heart. Because Ephesians 6.12 keeps me up at night. Because we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against some cosmic powers of this darkness, against spiritual forces in the heavenly places, that there is a battle not just for my own soul, but for the heart and mind of my child. And that battle has been raging for a very, very long time. And it comes in ways that we don't even understand. It comes in very slick ways of these perfect celebrities that are trying to get my child to buy the things that will completely erode their soul. We have well-crafted movies and well-crafted videos that are going to draw them away from the things that what God has for them. And so then as a dad, or as my wife tries to go this, we try to have conversations. You say, well, well Tim, why isn't this happening in your home? Well, we have a lot of, a lot of things going on at home, and sometimes we need some one-on-one attention. And in these one-on-one attention times, by God's grace, we're trying. We're going to spend some time next week talking about what does that look like, all right? Because before, I don't want to get too far down that part, but that's next time. It's a battle. It's a battle to even do the battle. All right, and it's much easier for me to sit there and the only thing I ask my daughter or my son is sausage or bacon, or do you really need to order two French toast, or why are you ordering stuff you're not going to finish? You know, that we could make it that conversation. And it's so easy to do that type of conversation. But until I understand we're in a battle, and I understand that my weapons in this battle are the Word of God, and by God's grace, the lives that have already been lived, as well as my life leading forward to try to point them that, that God is greater. We were driving here in the car, and Catherine asked me a question about this, and I said to her, because here's what I'm trying to do, Catherine. Now, my daughter loves, Catherine loves watching I Love Lucy's, and she thinks that Lucy is just the funniest thing, and just 
would, would watch them nonstop over and over and over again. And I said to her, my prayer for you, Catherine, is that you would love the things of God more than you love those things. That not that sitting there and watching I Love Lucy is wrong unless, I mean, she's a little crazy, but in some of those things there to go, hey, look, my desire is for that you, the way you run to those would be the way you run to God, and now I can only point you in that direction. I can't force you to do it, but that's my prayer. And I think it got into her mind. Maybe she was paying attention, maybe she wasn't. I thought at the moment we were like, woohoo, but... You know, it's those moments where you're like, I don't know if that went anywhere. And so we sit here and we have these conversations and we talk. And the questions that arise in my own heart is I ask myself, do I really treat these kids as if they're a gift for the life to come? Or am I treating them as if they're a gift for only this life? Because it is a battle. You know why it's a battle that I forget the eternal perspective? is because guess what I see right now? Right now. And so it is easy for me to treat my kids and to treat each other as if we're only a gift for this lifetime. But I lose the eternal perspective, and that's why we need each other. Because it is easy to drop my eyes on the gaze going on around me. Tim Paul Jones, in his book on family ministry, said this, If children are nothing more than a gift for this lifetime, if kids were only a gift for right now, He said, a single-minded focus on my child's happiness and success makes all the sense in the world. He goes on to say, if children were a gift for this life only, maybe it would make sense to raise them with calendars that are full, but souls that are empty, captives to the deadly delusion that their value depends on what they accomplish here and now. If children were only a gift for this lifetime, how would that impact me? If children, were only, if children were a gift for the life to come, how would that impact me? So if I was an aunt and uncle, and I only had an earthly focus, my number one goal for my nieces and nephews would just that they're happy, as long as they're happy. Their happiness matters, above all. If children were only a gift for this lifetime, what would it look like to parent? What does it look like to grandparent? If your kids, your grandchildren are only a gift for this lifetime. So, since I'm not a grandparent, I called my dad, who is a grandparent, and I said, hey, answer this question. So put on your earthly goggles, and he said, well, that's easy to do because I do that all the time, and tell me what would be your main goal for your grandchildren. And he said, my main goal would be for them, would be that my grandchildren are comfortable, safe, and never experience anything that is uncomfortable or makes them unhappy. He said, if I was earthly focused, their happiness would be my number one goal. And he said, you don't know how many times I've wanted to sweep in and solve a problem for you that if I did, you would not get the strength and the muscles to solve that on your own. And he says, there's such a part of me that wants to just to come in and says, don't worry, well, I'll solve it all. And he says, and it's a battle of his. And he says, by God's grace, I think I do that well. There's sometimes I do help and there's other times I don't help, but I try to go, how do I do that? Because he says, everything in me wants just to help and make your life just as cozy as possible. And he said, but then Tim, guess what? You never learn. And then my grandkids never learn. And I was like, I never thought of it that way. I was like, well, may, you know, in my mind, I'm like, well, maybe I could still teach them. You could still help. And then you could, you know, but no, and I sit there and go, hey, he was making a point for me. 
If children were only a gift for this lifetime, if they were only for right now, the people right now that are teaching our kids downstairs and all over the place are just really nice babysitters, that some are paid, some are not. And the ones who are paid, well, it's their job anyway, right? And they just kind of glorify the babysitting role. But we know that children are not a gift for this lifetime. But this is the part we need to know. They are bearers of the gospel to a generation yet unborn. Think about that for a moment. That children are bearers of the gospel to a generation that is yet born. Psalm 78 talks about this over and over again. If we understood that children are bearers of the gospel to a generation unborn, we would start to realize that there's a battle for their heart, mind, and soul. Because guess what? Satan knows that as well. That they are bearers of the gospel to children yet unborn. So how do you attack that? You attack and win the hearts of the children. If we start, though, to understand that we're at war, and the children are a gift for the life to come, then the Sunday school teachers become warriors that are standing alongside of us as parents, not in place of us as parents, as warriors standing alongside of us as parents, ready to take on the battle of this world. Because you should already understand this. As we said before, one over 168 of church discipleship is not enough. Okay, And my prayer for us as the family pastor here at Calvary is to, for you to understand that family ministry is not an event on the calendar that we can just do and check off. Family ministry is a way of thinking that should permeate everything we do. And so what we try to do here by God's grace is say, it's time for us to put these gl- glasses on to understand that we're in a battle, to understand that each one of us, that there's a battle for our own hearts, our own minds, and our own souls. Because if Satan can make you feel that you're out of the battle, then he has taken one soldier out that has not even fired a a shot at all. And he's disarmed you. And you sit here and go, well, Tim, I'm not a parent. I'm not this. I'm not that. We'll talk about that here in a second. Because the last conversation we need to have is that there's a battle within the battle. And the battle within the battle is this. As I just said before, the battle is, is we can disarm you. If we can make you feel that you have been pushed away, that you are just a, a fringe person on the outside, that you have nothing to offer, that's exactly where the enemy wants you. The enemy does not want you on the front line. The enemy wants you to, wants you to think that you are in no value to this group. And here's how the enemy does it. The enemy does it like this. Hey, Tim, I grew up at the compromised table and I grew up at the confused table. I have nothing to say to anybody who's trying to live at the committed table. My family, if you knew my family that I grew up in, you would not ask me to do anything. You'd probably be so embarrassed you'd say, well, you know, hey, we got something for you to do, and it's like out in the parking lot in the woods somewhere. Or we say things like this, I've been a failure. You know, the only thing I can bring into this is to tell you what not to do. The only help I can bring to the committed family is everything I did do the exact opposite, and you'll probably be a whole lot better than me. And so what starts to happen then is we literally move ourselves out of this, and we feel like a failure. And if that moment you're saying, hey, wait a minute, I'm feeling like a failure, I want to put some context around a passage of Scripture that people use all the time, but they kind of miss the context of it. In Lamentations... Lamentations is written by Jeremiah, known as the weeping prophet. And when he writes in Lamentations, what has just happened is 
the nation of Israel, Judah, has been taken captive by Babylon. And they have taken the, the brightest, the children, because this is not a new idea that if you get the hearts of the children, you get the hearts of the generations to come. Interesting schooling opportunities there. But anyway, as we walk through this, what they decided to do was they took the young Israelite men, 12, 13 years old, and they took them to brainwash school in Babylon. And these, we know at least four names of these guys. They were Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they took them off to brainwash them in the schools of Babylon. Now, Jeremiah is standing there. He sees the destruction all around him. The stronger men, right? The men of that day were killed. The women taken away. Our youth, what? Ready to be brainwashed. The best and the brightest we have, ready to be brainwashed by the Babylonian world. And what does Jeremiah pen? He pens this. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Not I will hope that these Babylon guys survive, right? No, his hope is in God. Because what is God saying? I will always have a remnant. My plan will not be thwarted. So no matter what Babylon tries to do with our youth, guess what? I will have my way. And we see that play out through the whole book of Daniel. The whole book of Daniel should say, no matter how bad you have messed up in the past, as long as your heart is beating, there is a path back to forgiveness. Now that path back may take some humbling It may take you maybe getting on your knee before your children, whether physically or figuratively, that's the word I was looking for, figuratively, and asking them to forgive you. It may also look like the idea that, you know what, this is a long road to haul. This is going to take some work. But there's always forgiveness and grace for the next day. But yet at the same time, too, There are some consequences that come, right? But yet God still forgives. And those consequences might cause us some tears. But I stand here and I'm asking you, are we ready to say as for me and my house, and for me and my, and we'll talk about this next week, what does the practicality of these things look like? Are we ready to say for as much as I have in front of me that God has given me, may I be faithful with that? moving forward. There's nothing we can do about the past other than ask for forgiveness and move on from it learning. And so I'm asking you this. We're going to put up a a picture of a compass here real quick. And you'll see here, this little red line is two degrees different than north. Now, if we were on a boat, let's say we were traveling a boat going about 30 miles an hour, and all of a sudden someone said, let's go right, and I decided to do a 90-degree turn. All right, the boat may go 90 degrees, but the rest of us that are on the boat are just going to go flying straight ahead, having some issues. All right? But when you make a two-degree change, it's a slight change, but over time, guess where you start to become? Further away from where you were. If I were to put someone else beside me here, and I made them go two degrees a little bit different than me, and we started walking, it wouldn't take long before we were out of even earsight, I mean, eyesight or ear whatever I was going that, you get the idea, Uh, or hearing from each other. 
And so as we walk this path, what I'm asking us to do is, what is that next step of intentionality that we ha- you have? What are those moments that you can be intentional and in where God has called you? Because the so what for today is, do I live my life understanding, first of all, the real spiritual battle? Do I understand we're at war? And when I understand we're at war, what am I doing then each week to pass on the faith? Not just to the next generation, but to one another. Because we need this as well. It's not as if we just only focus on our children. We'll start to realize, wait a minute, who are the ones that are teaching them? They need this. And we stand here and we say, so what does this look like? By God's grace, next week, we're going to try to spend some time looking at what this looks like. How do we play this out? Because I'll tell you what, it is a struggle. It is something that takes intention, being intentional. Just like Moses said, you need to diligently teach these to your children. Yet a lot of times, though, we sit here and say, you know what, I'm not perfect. I don't know how this is supposed to work out. I'll give you just a little taste of what we're going to try to, by God's grace, to do next week. If you were to go and sit down and listen to some of the average conversations that we have when we're trying to have family devotions about where right now we're reading through the plagues in Egypt. And as we're going through that, I don't know how many times they've said, sit up, stop poking your sister. Why are you rolling on the ground? Why are you doing this? Weren't, is anybody paying attention? All right. And then sometimes at the end, as I read, because of this wonderful dyslexia that I bounce around, sometimes Moses is saying things that Pharaoh should have said and all sorts of other things. And I'm going, is anybody getting this? And in my own mind, I'm going, I don't even know exactly what I just read completely either. And I'm sitting here having these conversations with myself going, what's, oh boy, all right. But if I start to realize that, you know what, it's the daily, day in and day out, all right. One of the guys that I really look up to, his name is Don Whitney, and he actually said in all of his family devotions, he said he has never had a time where he walked away and said, wow, God just poured down upon us and all this. He said, all we remember is dogs throwing up, these things happening here. But you know what his daughter said when they left? They said, you know what we missed the most about growing up was our family conversations about God. And he went, I, I thought I was a completely utter failure when it came to that. And he's a professor who's written way too many books than anybody should write on these topics. All right, and if he's battling with these things, what does it look like? And so I say to us is let's walk this journey together. Because again, by God's grace, this is a way of thinking that should hopefully permeate our, our lives. That we sit here and say, what has God called me to do? And how can I be intentional in that small step that we have moving forward? So let's pray. Dear Holy Father, thank you. Thank you for your word and your truth. Give us wisdom as a church as we step out into this world, knowing that there will be pushback, knowing that there will be struggles, and knowing that we need each other. May you be glorified in all we say and all we do. In your son's name we pray. Amen. If you could stand for the benediction. It's in Romans chapter 11. One of the reasons why we keep singing this song and I keep leaving you with a benediction is if you say, what am I to teach the next generation? What am I to teach each other? My prayer is that you would teach them the depth and the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. And that to him is all the glory. Romans 11. Oh, the depth and the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments 
How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might repay? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. I release you to a week of being intentional.